Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode will be devoted to the top 10 album choices of mine and your illustrious co-host, John, on the other side. I don't know why I sound like a lounge guy. <laughs> a personal friend of mine. Yeah, dig it, daddy-o. <laughs> um, uh, so we, what, basically what we do is uh, we go one by one. So it, I'm not in any particular order. Are you in order? I kind of have an order, but not really. I change it kind of based on what you talk about sometimes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't go top ten like this is my favorite to least favorite of my favorites, if that makes sense. Um, unlike, you know, like some of the stuff we do where it's a top ten choice. But this is just ten albums from 1990, so uh, we have not flipped a virtual coin. I can't remember who went first last time, so John's Jay's first before him. There we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, again, I, I didn't do necessarily my top 10 favorite albums of this year. It was more of, again, kind of like the old, old thing where it's like albums I think are totally underrepresented or kind of forgotten. And I think probably one of the most forgotten albums of 1990 is The Simpsons Sing the Blues. I think it's so strange that they went with so much there, there's other thing other things on here than blues but that's the focus and it's so strange to me because kids were crazy for it kids aren't crazy for the blues they were crazy for bartman and that's about it yeah the whole thing is in retrospect this album is fucking insane uh like okay yeah like you said it makes sense that it uh you know there's all this merchandising for the simpsons because it was popular but like the lead single off this thing, the Do, Do the Bartman, was co-written by Michael Jackson. I did and, not know that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like granted he did a guest up uh, on uh, Simpsons at one point, and you can't see that on Disney Plus because reasons. Uh, has there? Like, yeah. Can I ask you this? Is controversial. I was just thinking about this this morning. Has it ever been? Has it actually been proven, or is this still hearsay? I don't know. Uh, there's I, I didn't watch the documentary, but as I recall, it he he won the case, but I don't remember if there was a with the civil stuff, but it, it's a mess. It, it like I, I don't want to wade too far into that uh, controversy, but I will say the from what I remember and what I've read about it, uh, on the opposite side, not on the Michael Jackson side, but the father of one of the kids was a real piece of work and I don't know. You so, know, is it okay appear- for me to still love his music? We're good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I can separate the artist from the ar- <laughs> the person <laughs> uh, most of the time. Mel Gibson. I'm not talking to you. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. But okay. But yeah, you have Michael Jackson. Uh, Deep Deep Trouble uh, was co-written by DJ Jazzy Jeff. Like uh, this, this album also has like. All right. Uh, you mentioned some. There's like covers on this as well. You got uh, Chuck Berry's School Days, Billy Holiday's God Bless the Child, Randy Newman's I Love to See You Smile. And weirdly enough, I actually think probably of the covers, the better uh, the better cover, which is Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign. Yes. Being sung by Homer. Yeah, it's the best one. But it's like David Jimmy Johansson from the New York Dolls, aka Buster Poindexter, is you know works on this. Uh, the horn section of Tower of Power, uh, singer songwriter Doctor John, who 
just, you know, aside from his own work, worked with Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, Van Morrison, Canned Heat. Joe Walsh is on this album. <laughs> fucking, fucking B.B. King well, yeah, is on this album. Well, hold on. Let's not hold that up to some sort of, like, how did they get B.B. King? The year before this, he was in Rockula where he wore a bee costume. I don't know what the fuck was going on with B.B. King at this moment, but... Um, well, probably probably to pay some bills like everybody. Yeah, but, I would say, because uh, I think he ended up on so. an episode of Booker as well. But Fox really put out all the money, but also... Simpsons was red fucking hot, lava hot at this moment, and everybody wanted in on this cool hip thing. Fox was the channel for all the cool stuff. And uh, it's just, I guess, because it, it, it connected to a youthful audience, a lot of these artists were like, well, maybe I can find a new audience with this. Yeah, or, again, at least it could very well be people uh, rolling in favors and stuff. Yeah. Like, kind of in a way, like the uh, William Shatner album that uh, Ben <laughs> Folds did. Yeah. That, that, I, I kind of have a feeling that that's probably the case is like, you know, someone knew Buster Poindexter. And then he said, oh, hey, I know, you know, this guy. And then this, you know, and someone else came in and just went, yeah, I got nothing else to do this weekend. But yeah, this, this is nuts that, that this thing exists and, and it sold well sold very well yeah and let, let's be fair this is they they pretty much the only other albums they put out were related to uh the show the songs from the show and i think one other uh like cover album where they did where they did some forms of hits and stuff yeah but this this is surprisingly a pretty good album, all things considered, too. Yes, I was expecting Misery. I forgot about this album completely. I heard it when I was a kid because my uncle had it, but uh, I expected Misery. And now it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, and I think it's because uh, two of the songs uh, I really I really enjoy more so than, you know, I, I will say it's Deep Deep Trouble, I think, of the two hits is the stronger song. But... Uh, there's uh, the Monty Burns sung uh, track, Look at All Those Idiots. Yeah, I like that and, one. <laughs> and you also have Moaning Lisa Blues, which is the extension from the song of the same episode, which was pretty good. All right. Uh, anything else to say about that one? Uh, listen to this thing, because it's, it's nuts. Um, all right, so my first selection is an extremely obscure one. <laughs> the only reason I know of it is because my friend Will had a podcast called Obscurity Knocks, where uh, he would interview actors and he would pick some of the most obscure stuff in their uh, repertoire, you know, to kind of mix things up from other interviews. And uh, he would play Obscurity Knocks, the opening track, as the opening to his podcast. And yeah, I if you listen if you think of the name Trash Can Sinatra, you're probably thinking like a punk band. These guys are pretty damn good. They're just like you know, adult alternative is, is the best way I can put it. Yeah, it's like I I had no idea what this was, and you know, like that that opening track, Obscurity Knocks. It's like feels like a blend of late '80s kind of Cure like feel, but that has like this mid '90s polish. Yeah, it's kind of surprised this didn't, uh, you know, kind of make the college radio or, you know, alternative radio because it's, I mean, maybe it's the name. I'm guessing it's probably the name really held them back, but uh, I think this is their first album, Cake. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's I, I won't go so far as to say I loved the album, but I I did enjoy it. It's a pleasant I, it, discovery, I would say. Yeah, it 
it was definitely something I was not expecting out of out of a lot of of albums on here. I was I will say I was pleasantly surprised. Yes, I was I was wondering. Uh, I was kind of hoping that it was just Oscar the Grouch doing Sinatra covers, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You're next. Uh, let's see. Well, let's go and do a second album of a band that we've uh, taken a look at. Okay, I I did I did four uh, to you when I was uh, talking about doing this album. Did you listen uh, when we put on KMFDM's Naive? Did you actually listen to the additional uh, covers that were uh, not covers but uh, remixes? No, I didn't. I made about halfway uh, through. I'm never gonna get KMFDM. And look, you're, I know they have a strong cult following. My friend Aaron in high school was obsessed with them. I just can't get into them. Something isn't there for me. Well, that's uh, kind of because this is uh, this was their first album for uh, the Chicago indie label Wax Tracks, and it's also their first album after touring the U.S. for the first time. And going to the South was a hell of a culture shock, and it gets reflected into a few of the songs that have like uh, "Go to Hell," "Die Now," "Live Later," and "Godlike," all of which kind of have that you know. Real, you know, reaction to seeing billboards about you know, believe in God or you go to hell and stuff like that. <laughs> Shit like that in Oregon. <laughs> Should do not. Well, yeah, yeah, but they they specifically talked about in the Southern culture yeah, shock. Yeah. In interview, I remember. Uh, and what you I, did you get at least uh, the German song Liebeslied? I might have. I we I crammed in ten albums in like a couple of days. So I kind of forgot a lot. I'm sorry. Because uh, okay. uh, that uh, was actually... Uh, this album got pulled because they uh, sampled uh, Carl Orff's uh, Carmina Burana without permission. And uh, it, why I was saying listen to the remix is because they went and remixed all... Well, not all the songs, most of the songs, and basically reinvented them. Like, I think Naive as, a, as an album on its own is a little rough. Uh, although Godlike is probably you know the best thing, but then you get to those remi- that remixed version, and all of a sudden every single song is like a thousand times more listenable, better. Just like production, like the production quality of it is just you know out of sight. And that, that's kind of what I was hoping to have you do is like, okay, I'm hearing you know hear uh, virus, and now let's hear. The Pestilence mix, which is now a completely different song, almost. I got nothing to say. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll just do <laughs> one other one. Because oh, we'll, we'll probably will get to all of these ones. But uh, they did that song, Leave a Slide, three different times. Uh, the one that's on this album in its original German. Uh, as a song called Hole in the Wall, which is in English, off angst. And then uh, Panzerfaust, which is sung in Italian on another album. Exact same song, well, same lyrics, just musically sounding a bit different each time. Huh. Ah. So what do you got? All right, so the next one is King's X, Faith, Hope, and Love. I had heard people, you know, claim about this band for decades. And I know some people are huge fans of them. The only track I ever knew was off of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I think it's like Juniors and Lovers. I can't remember what it is, but um, Juniors in Trouble or something like that. Do you remember what I'm talking about on the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack? No? I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I, 
If I had it in front of me, I, I could tell you what it was. But um, and I thought that was a pretty good track. But I never really sat down and listened to them because they weren't really uh, mainstream rock. I mean, they're they're the closest thing you think of like a progressive rock at that time, or maybe early, you know, like uh, I can't really describe what they are. The uh, soulful rock, I don't know. But I um, as a as an adult now, I was. Uh, more able to get into it because it's more about the message than just trying to get catchy hooks and um you know earworms into your head they're they're a different style of alternative at this time and uh, i i dug it well absolutely i i thought it was an okay album uh it wasn't really kind of blown me away but yeah it's like it's got this hard and prog rock mix that's pretty well balanced and it's like I don't know if this would necessarily have been the best introduction to him for me, but at the same time, I do kind of want to take a listen to some more of their secular music, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, like a little later on in their career, they they dropped like a uh, the Christian uh, overtones uh, of, of their what first three four albums. Yeah, something like that. this is the closest I'll ever get to Christian music in here. I'm pretty sure. There was a time when I got into, I really got into Christian rock around '93, and this, you might see like Bride or Guardian pop up, but all right, yeah, it's like yeah. I, I would give him a shot yeah. again. Uh, you're next. All right, let, let's go to the uh, complete antithetical uh, thing to them, and let's. What about Slayer's Seasons in the Abyss? <laughs> I can't do Slayer. It's two in a row, man. I, I tried so fucking hard. Of the big four, this is the one I just don't get. It's a, it's a loss on me. I'm sorry. Well, that's just it. For me, this is probably their best album. Yeah, that's what I usually not... hear. This is the one that's always brought up. Yeah, well, that's just it. It's like, it's heavy as fuck. It's brutal as hell. But also, it's musically cohesive. Like, uh, you know, you, you get like, this is the tightest they've ever been. And, you know, they kind of step away from all these abstract horrors. So it's a lot, a little bit less you know demons and shit like that and it's more about like tangible horror like you know it it's not just uh you know satan serial killers and nazis now now there's like actual war and other and other sort of things and it's it, it's pretty pretty friggin' good like uh it's an out it's an oral horror film like uh, there's a song uh dead uh dead skin mask is a song that fucking terrifies me to my core. <laughs> and well, it's like it's, like, it's a song. It's a, it's a song about Ed Gein, and the song closes what I guess is supposed to be like a child begging Gein to let him go, and you just you get creeped the fuck out because yeah, it's just disturbing, yeah. oh, it's like oh god, you know. And but it's it's in there going right along with all these, you know, the darkness of it, and that's the thing. It's supposed to elicit an emotional reaction. And that's the thing is, you know, that's it's you're supposed to feel this stuff not necessarily in an inspirational way like a Slayer. You know, they shouldn't be inspiring you to do much, but you should be shocked, scared, and then once the album's over, you kind of get you know that that purging of of a darkness. And but that's just me. <laughs> All right, so uh, my next selection is uh, Testament, Souls of Black, their most, I think, accessible album to people who are kind of like on the edge of that scene. Uh, this was given to me right when I was starting to get into that metal. So, like, you know, I got Sabbath, and I got Metallica, 
uh, Megadeth, and then I was given a cassette of Souls of Black, which I listened to all the time. Uh, this has such strong memories to me, but I do think, and, and I haven't listened to a whole lot after this, but I do think it's the most accessible, like the, the best produced album of theirs. Well, I, this was actually on my list of potential albums, and I, I kind of dropped it because I think it's a very okay record. It's like it's not not a bad album it, at all, but it's you just kind of go, yeah, I guess that rocked hard enough. Yeah, well, it's like just, Exodus. You're gonna see Force of Habit show up later. I don't really care for the rest of Exodus, but I love that one album. And I there, I think every band has that one album, and they try to. I don't know if you want to lower their level a bit so that other audiences can find them and then slowly get, I don't know I don't know what you call that but um, I was fine with it but I, I, I'm going to listen to the albums after this and see if they also would make oh. a list oh yeah it's like right before this and after this I think like Practice What You Preach before it and Ritual After that came after are both amazing albums uh, I'll even go so far as to say maybe The Gathering in 99 maybe is there might be my favorite album of theirs. Okay. Did we do practice what you preach? I feel like that made the the list. Am I wrong? No, no, no. We did the their first album. Oh, okay. All right, your turn. Let's see. Jump back to mine. Well, let's stick on this metal kick and do Pantera's Cowboys from Hell. Fuck yeah. Um, the only thing I don't like about Pantera. Uh, is what I don't like about metal, period, is when it goes super, super fucking high. That falsetto shit, you can keep that. The screeching guitars, you can keep that. I like it when it's mean and crunchy. Uh, well, come on, that comes from the fact that they that this is actually Pantera's fifth album. Yeah. And all the ones, pro well, except for the one right before it, all the ones before that were... Uh, uh, all these glam rock things. Yeah, I didn't even know this was their fifth album. I thought this was like their second. But um, yeah, I think this is the point where everybody starts to get into them too. Because Cowboys from Hell, all of a sudden, I started seeing the shirts everywhere and people were talking about this. And the next album are the ones that really uh, were like their big ones. Well, it's the thing. It starts off with its title track and it's this buzzsaw guitar riffs. And if you aren't headbanging in the first 30 seconds, I'm sorry, something's wrong with you. <laughs> and then it... The thing doesn't really let up until you get to uh, what I think is probably the album's masterpiece, which is Cemetery Gates. Yes, absolutely. This is that's the best track on this album. Yeah, it's like it's a song that literally will make you cry and headbang at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, the entire thing. It's just it's an almost unrelenting, uh, ma you know, masterpiece of you know groove metal. So yes, this is probably this is probably one of the strongest albums that came out this whole year. All right, my next. You're next. You gotta tell me so I stop asking awkwardly. <laughs> okay, uh, Super Chunk self-titled debut. Uh, I just this seems like it's ten years ahead of time. Am I wrong in thinking this doesn't feel like 1990? This feels like like 98, 2000. It has a sound so far ahead of its time, and I was there for it, because this is the exact sound I go for in the 90s. This, oh, no, 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 no. No? I, mean, I, I didn't really know anything of them, and uh, now I don't want to know anything okay. more. Okay, well, I really uh, enjoyed well, it. Well, the thing is, it's, the big thing is, I in listening to this, it really, you know... It, it basically shows us kind of where pop punk began. Yeah, or, or shoegazer, you want to call it. 
Yeah, because uh, well, it's like I can hear a lot of these little shitty bands, you know, that I heard in high school and early college. Uh, you know, like Blink One Eighty Two, and uh, you know some of the shittier stuff that Offspring put out. Oh. It's like it, Offspring has some great stuff, but they also got a bunch of bullshit. We're and... gonna have trouble in the <laughs> late 90s or two thousands. But yeah, it's I hear I hear where all that stuff just kind of popped up, and it. It really just kind of... I, I got through it. I listened to the whole album, so it is definitely better than Elvis Costello. <laughs> I'll give it, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Spike was rough for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it is your turn. It is my turn, and we are going to look at Sacred Reich's The American Way. Fuck yes. You you make me discover bands that I, I'd never even heard of before and fall in love with them. This was so good. That's the thing. It's like they were actually one of the bands that I kind of missed out because they really disappeared around the time I was getting into metal. Like I think their last album for a long time was in '96, and that was about the cusp that I was starting to learn, you know, or to truly learn all kinds of stuff. But I was also leaning more, you know, starting. You know, it's like oh yeah, Metallica and some of these things, but also heavier stuff like you know, In Flames and Dark Tranquility and whatnot. So. It was this band that, you know, like Testament or Death Angel, it was like the second wave of thrash. And unfortunately, unlike those other two bands, I these guys just kind of got lost in the shuffle for me. And this is them firing on all cylinders. It's thrashy as hell, but it's also got a lot of uh, social commentary, yeah. and it never lets up. I mean, the title track is... Is probably one of the biggest bangers of all time. Yeah, I can see the influence that it would have on other political metal down the road. Like, you even see it in the political punk. So I see stuff uh, that Rise Against an Anti-Flag would do from this band. Oh, yeah. And what's funny is it also has a funk rock track at the end of it yeah. called 31 Flavors, which <laughs> is so bizarre because it's just... It's like how much there's so much great stuff out there, like uh, different flavors of ice cream and sex with different ladies and how there's a lot of different awesome music to do, like the Chili Peppers and Faith No More. <laughs> <laughs> it's like and, – and they drop – and they actually uh, drop Mr. Bungle. And it's like I guess we have to do some Bungle now. <laughs> bungle, not Bungle. Just yeah, Bungle. Bungle. <laughs> All right. Um, so ACDC, The Razor's Edge, that's probably the most mainstream of mainstream of 1990. I know this, but it is one of, I think it's literally the first CD I ever owned. I just remember being a big deal that ACDC was back. The last half of the 80s, they were kind of just fumbling. They had minor hits like Shoot to Thrill and stuff like that and Blow, out your, blow up Your Video. But, you know, they were uh, at the point where it looked like they were on the downward trend. And all of a sudden, just they blow up. I think they got a new producer on this one. Um, Bruce, uh, fuck. Uh, his last name is Fuck. It's Bruce Fuck. He's a very well-known producer. Um, but uh, they, they kind of changed up the sound a little bit. And they had two massive, massive hits. which are still, you know, considered classics today. Money Talks and Thunderstruck. But there's a lot of really good stuff in here. I think Razor's Edge is actually their best track. It's it's more horrific. That, that is a menacing song, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that's like, what I wish it more was. Like, Stripper for Christmas is more bullshit from them that, you know, isn't worthy of this album. Um, 
But I think there's just I think this is like a good coming back album, and and I think they would take more time. I think they were doing one every two years, and this is like when they started going like every five to six years, and just you know making sure they had a really well planned out album. Well, it's like for me, this is the last ACDC album I like until uh, 2008's Black Ice. Okay. Like like it, Ballbuster and oh god, whatever the other one is called. Uh, yeah, those they those don't really do it for me, but. But uh, yeah, it's like they, they kind of went back and did once they did Black Ice and then they haven't done anything really that good since. Yeah, the new one I think is all leftover tracks before uh, Malcolm Young died, I think. It's still, it's okay. My favorite yeah, track though from all time is from uh, Last Action Hero, Big Gun. I know, I know, it's cheesy, but I like it. <laughs> but Razor's Edge is an all-timer and it should get more credit. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a good a good ACDC album out of a lot of I mean, considering that they have some very strong tracks, this one is definitely a an, a good album. Yeah. All right, your turn. Let me go to how about Public Enemies' Fear of a Black Fuck Planet? Yes, I keep doing this every time. You see, I'm more excited about his albums than I am for my own. Um, I can I tell you a little story about Public Enemy and my personal experience with them. Go yeah. for it. Okay, so I am new to a school. I lived in the city. I had African-American friends. It was normal. It was like, you know, uh, <laughs> that I moved to a hick town. <laughs> Nobody liked rap. We all listened to country. And I walked in one day with a Public Enemy shirt that I got on vacation in Florida. And I got the tape. And I listened to the fucking hell out of this thing. And boy, it did not go over well. I lasted one day with that Public Enemy shirt. I literally got the snot beat out of me because uh, we went to the roller rink and everybody would slam me up against the wall and call me End Lover. So, Well, gee, there's stuff on this album that uh, addresses that kind of bullshit, doesn't it? Yep. Uh, yeah, because that's just yeah. Flavor Flav, I think, is unbelievably underrated for what he was doing at this time. It's his own damn fault for what he did ten years later. Became like a reality TV star and became a joke. But he can fucking rap. Well, he can fucking play too. He's he, the dude's like he's so he's multi talented, and it's yeah. You kind of have this guy who basically yeah. He, he looks like he's a joke. He, you know, he seems clownish. And then all of a sudden, you know, you drop, uh, I think there's what that, uh, there's like a little video of him just dropping from a piano and just all of a sudden just start playing the shit out of yeah. it. Yeah. But 911 as a joke is just tops for me. Yeah. It's like burn Hollywood burn. Fuck yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Dome. That, that one, uh, burn Hollywood burn. I really, that should have been a single because not only do you have, legendary artists coming in on it but they have a lot to say about the industry and how they're just making everybody it's kind of like the music version of hollywood shuffle yeah this uh, like my god like fight, well again the, the biggest one is fight the power of course yeah and you know that's the, the entire thing this this album is like i'll be honest there is a better album that we will later discuss but uh <clears throat> Seriously, this is pretty much. Uh, I don't. I don't want to necessarily say this is Public Enemy's best album, but if it's not their best album, it's number two. I remember I had uh, Music and Our Mess Age uh, around what ninety four, ninety six, and I think that's the last like amazing album that they had. Don't believe the uh, hype. That was the other hit off of this. Yeah. 
No, don't believe the hype was off uh, the it? previous one. If okay. I remember right. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the Enemy but... Strikes Back. I had that one too. Okay, so I had all three of those albums. I didn't have one before that though. The 1988 album. But remember how they came off of uh, uh, Do the Right Thing? And all of a sudden, everybody knew who they were. And this was just like that perfect moment for them to, you know, get the best drop, album out. Yeah. 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 To drop this album. And yeah, just it, it exploded. And rightfully so. This is, this is an album that I really do think everybody should hear. Regardless if you think that you're going to like it or not, you should hear it. All right. So, so... what do you got? Uh, not the same genre anyway. I feel bad because every time I make a list of hip hop albums, and it just—it's almost there. It's almost there for me, uh, but I haven't really got there yet. But a uh, uh, concept album by Queens Wright called Empire. Uh, I have never heard this album before. I knew of them because of Silent Lucidity, and I just didn't care for it. I didn't realize that there was like two other hits off of this, but the whole album together as a unit works incredibly well. And I am now disappointed in myself for knocking them as just another hair metal band. Hair. Glam rock, I guess. Glam metal? What do you call them? Well, they're they're a prog rock band. We're a prog metal band. But but they were were sold on MTV as, you know, glam metal. Oh, yeah. Well, because Jet City Woman is kind of glammy. Same thing with Silent Lucidity. Kind of has that. But, yeah, the thing is, this is... It's not my favorite Queen Strike album, but it is definitely their best album. And it's, you know, it's the most accessible form of prog metal. Uh, like I said, you know, there's Jet City Woman, Empire, Another Rainy Night Without You. Like, this thing is filled with great tracks. I was going to do this album also at one point, but I uh, I shuffled it aside partially because we did Operation Mindcrime. Uh-huh. So I was like, yeah, okay, well, if we were going to talk about Queen's Strike, this was where I would have wanted to uh, introduce yeah. people. My crime was good, but this, I really just, this is a notch higher. Yeah, I, well, I think it was too early in their career, really, to do their uh, their uh, their wall. I think they, they, needed, they needed this album first and then do Mind Crime to be a little bit more of a cohesive story and a cohesive album. An elaborate sound, I think. Oh, I, yeah. think, I think I remember the email. I think it was Bruce Rathburn. Bruce Rathburn that did uh, Razor's Edge. I could be wrong. Bruce Fairbairn? Fairbairn? I don't fucking know. It's a Bruce. <laughs> but, but the thing is, like, there are better bands that do what Queen Strike uh, has done. Uh-huh. But this, considering that this is the highest selling prog metal album of all time, that definitely speaks very highly. Of yeah, I was gonna say Dream Theater. I think is the one that's probably the king now of prog metal. Uh, oh yeah, of of this era. But they only had like one hit, "Pull Me Under." Yeah, there's actually that's their uh, the name of their greatest hits album is like greatest hit, and uh, it's like. Yeah. And like twelve other songs yeah. or something they, like they that. They shouldn't call it greatest hits. They should call it the best of. If you only have one or two hits, don't do that. Call it the best of. Well, <laughs> well, that's it, to say they don't have hits is really stupid. There's only one song that hit big. Yeah, but Dream true. Theater is. Well, I amazing. always count it. I always count it as what chart that really matters when it comes to one hit wonders. That's Billboard. If you have one top forty hit, there you go. That's your one hit. But there's some bands that, like, you know, they had tons of well-known songs that did well on, like, very specific radio. But when it comes to mainstream, because uh, you uh, you and I, I, think, talked about doing a top 10 one-hit wonders of the 80s, and it's, it's really difficult to do because 
well, there's college radio, there's alternative radio, there, you know, there's other stuff. Was so it's hard to say what was a one-hit wonder. True. Yeah, that's that is kind of the thing. It's where where do where does it uh, think what criteria do you right. go by? Because all sorts of stuff. Boingo Boingo and Devo on paper, if you're looking at Billboard Top 40, are one-hit wonders. But you know, they had tons of like cult hits for other radio stations. All right, where are we? Okay, uh, we are mine. Yeah, my next one is Depeche Mode's Violator. Oh, the big one. Is this their biggest album? There's so many hits off this, this thing. It's amazing. This is yeah, this is the biggest album. I I don't think they were they ever hit as high as this album was. And it's understandable. Like, you know, this is the song that this album that has all the songs everybody knows. And what's funny about it is it's a very dark album. Yeah. Like like the the songs everybody knows are all the poppy ones. Every other song is like <laughs> dark, you know, dark wave uh, industrial stuff. Yeah, they're changing it's... their sound to make it more complex for the '90s, which I think is funny, is because some bands are trying to get lighter, and I think they they made the right choice. Even the name itself feels dark, Violator. Well, apparently that was just because they wanted to have an album that sounded like a heavy metal album, just for the shits and giggles of it. <laughs> But it's like Halo is my favorite song off this. You know, just if I had a band right, you know, this moment, I would say like, sorry, I got to go and record a song right now. Yeah. But you have like Sweetest Perfection, which is this dark, gothy love song. Like I, I'm probably on my own with this, but it kind of feels like it's a Nine Inch Nails song put through a pop filter. <laughs> you know, like, there's a darkness in that song that, you know, it doesn't sink down to Trent Reznor levels, but it's there. You know, clean uh, is like a total Pink Floyd vibe, and doesn't really feel like anything else on this thing. Like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All, all the all these singles are great, but all the other songs are great too. This yeah. is a great album. Totally. All right, uh, Jane's Addiction, Ritual de Lo Habitual. Uh, of course, the big one off this is um, Caught Stealing, but I think I think the whole album is just a lot of fun. I have a, a particular taste for. That California bouncy, funky, weird sound. You know, like that Fishbone and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction were doing. And this is the one that broke them, right? This is... Uh, yeah. They, dis was... they disappeared for a long time after this, I think, for like 15 years yeah, or something. Yeah, this was like their their last album. Uh, their like farewell tour was Lollapalooza that, they, that Perry Farrell uh, created. Yeah. Uh, this is a band that doesn't really do it for me. Like uh, and and let me step back from that that bombshell of a drop. Uh, there's talent here. I mean, holy crap! This is an album that's a showcase of how to play and construct music in fascinating ways. Uh -huh. But I hate Perry Farrell's vocals. I really really do. okay. So you're like, gonna hate Cornell for Pyros when I suggested it. If you yeah <laughs> yeah it's like Caught stealing is is good i like that song but everything else just kind of sounds like nails on a chalkboard okay sorry well we both have our own like it might yeah. you know, jane's addiction to you came fdm to me yeah. <laughs> yeah. well what's funny about this also is the second half of this record is like a totally different album like track six through nine yeah there's slower songs they got prog rock uh influences and it kind of made me think of uh black flag's my war because remember that that B side of that is all of a sudden you have, have like 
Yeah, like a bunch of punk songs, and then the other like last three songs are all these slow, dark, sludgy metal. Things. Yeah, well, it makes me think sometimes that a producer comes in with a record company and says, "Okay, guy, this isn't radio friendly enough. You need to do something different." And then they have to, you know, put some tracks aside and you know load it up with new songs, which happens often. Well, I was reading about that, and basically the 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 last couple of songs were all about uh, his uh, the. Over the heroin overdose of yeah. uh, Perry Farrell's girlfriend. So, yeah. boy, heroin like, really destroys the music scene. What the fuck? I know, man. Whatever happened but, to good old fashioned cocaine? Well, they they were doing all that in the eighties. <laughs> they ran out. So they had to start a new drug. <laughs> all right, your turn. All right, Bob Dylan's "Under the Red Sky." But I, you, I, when you suggested this, first off, I was thrown off, and two, I was like Bob Dylan. I only know Bob Dylan because of his funk stuff, and other than that, I know you know the band of the hand track. But I listened to this, and this has got some buggy woogie fun. This feels like you go out to some bar out in the middle of nowhere where everybody's just kicking ass and having fun or whatever. This is a really fun album. I was really impressed. That's the thing is, I, this this album doesn't get the doesn't get as much credit, partially because it was done at a time when Dylan was uh, disillusioned with the music industry. He was committed to the work to working with Traveling Wilburys, and you know David and Don was of was not was came in, and kind of went okay, you're not fully here, so let's bring in guest musicians, which is something that Dylan doesn't do, so. You have Slash playing guitar on Wiggle Wiggle, which is a fucking terrible song. Uh, Slash, yeah, it's kind of weird. I was not expecting that at all. It seems like but, it's just a phony, yeah. but it's still kind of fun. It can be terrible and fun. Yeah, but it's Slash playing guitar on a Bob Dylan act record. What the fuck world are we living in? <laughs> hey, uh, to be fair, next year he performs on uh, what? Um, Black and White? With uh, Michael Jackson, and he, yeah. he he doesn't get to do his good stuff. I, I don't even know why he's even on that album. <laughs> but it's like Elton John plays piano on the album. George Harrison, David Crosby's on this. Stevie Ray Vaughan plays guitar on 10,000 Men, and it shows. And like, I love Handy just... Dandy. Handy Dandy sounds starts off as kind of a stupid song, but then it gets like the story behind it. It's really complicated. And I was like, well, this is a good one. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, this is. I it, even Dylan doesn't particularly like this album, but I think people just kind of were a little, maybe a little too hard on it at the time, and it just kind of disappeared. And it's it's actually a pretty damn good album. Yeah, but look, people have been hard on Bob Dylan ever since he went electric. Period. So true. You know, I just <laughs> they're jaded. So I'm just gonna let that one go. But yeah, but that's definitely one to check out. And what do you got for me? Anthrax, Persistence of Time. And we finally get the Anthrax that I know and love, where they, they drop a lot of that falsetto, high-pitched... And now they're that full-fledged band that I love. The tracks are solid. Uh, they finally got more harmonic... Or harmonic. Harmony into it, melodic and harmony. Ugh, I combined the two words into one. Uh, this is the era of Anthrax where I'm all in. I like I like I was fifty fifty with them before this, but now I'm all in. Uh, this is the first Anthrax. Well, for not not their uh, that's not a greatest hits album. This is the first uh, Anthrax album that I owned, and I this was gonna be on my list too, but it, it's a good album. But it's also kind of a little too serious, 
which, you know, Anthrax has been known to tackle serious subjects, but usually they'll balance out with something that's, like, fun, goofy, you know. I like the serious, I like the serious version of them. When the guy from Armored Saint, I can't remember his name, uh, you know, when oh, Delibu- John Bush. They, yeah, he shows up the next album. That yeah, we, it, that does it for me. Oh, he's he's my favorite of it, but his, his stuff is pretty serious, and I, I just some as it, the time goes on, they're starting to become my favorite of the four. Yeah, it's like got got the time. the the Joe uh, Joe Jackson cover is amazing. Keeping the family and in my world a really good song, and it's it's got a, it does have a positive message of tolerance and peace and stuff. You know, let, let me. It's it's a good album, but it's. Definitely not not the I did. There was a reason why I didn't pick it. Okay, your turn. So what did I pick instead? I went and picked uh, ZZ Top's Recycler. <laughs> Shocked <laughs> by the fact that the first track <laughs> is a slow burn, and you know they're coming off. There was a long gap, I think, between what Eliminator and Recycler. Uh, five years, I think, and somewhere along the way, I think they forgot like who they were. They had all that synthesizer, and they're so focused on the music videos, you know. And it's always about the women; they kind of in the background. And uh, it was more dad rock. And they open up with a track that kind of says "fuck you" to your expectations. No, it's not the best track by any means on this album, but uh, they decided that this is who we are. This is who we were before we decided MTV was our our path. And it's more bluesy, and that's the whole album. Except for Double Back, which is obviously a track just for Back to the Future 3, which I love. Um, this is a really good Back to the Roots album. Now, I will say, so you did forget that there was Afterburner in between Eliminator and this. Okay. But but that was, like, super synth wave. That was, like, like they went way too new wave and, you know, basically, yeah, forgot their uh, blues rock roots. And... Uh, Seriously, I grew up basically thinking ZZ Top was a little more new wavy. Right. Their best stuff is before the MTV era. It just is. And um, after the whole MTV thing died down, like, just their their Texas blues, crunchy sound, not crunchy, uh, gritty sound, I guess you want to call it. It just, it's just better than that synth stuff. Yeah, and that's the thing is this is them deciding that they're gonna kind of head back towards that sound, and yes, there's still drum machines and synths on this album, but it is definitely a lot more blues oriented, and it's it's really like it's a kind of a wake up call really after listening to those two you listen to those two albums and then this and you are like, oh yeah, that's right, they were a really great blues rock band, weren't they? For some fucking reason, though, after this album, I think it's literally the next year, they do that god-awful Viva Las Vegas. Holy yeah. shit, what a terrible, yeah. terrible cover, and it was a hit. Shows you that people don't have taste. <laughs> yes, yes, that is 100% true. But then again, this also has a song called Burger Man on it. Yeah, okay, that was, that, song. Was, that was weird. They're, they're, they're getting there. They're not to the 96 era when they have, uh, was, what's the one from the Dust Till Dawn, She Bit Me or something like that? That's when they're like, oh, okay, this is really their sound again. And they stuck with that ever since. Well, they're, they're broken up now because the drummer no, died. No, they're but... still... No, they're still together. They got a new drummer? Why would you do that, man? Come on, well, man. Was, His name is Beard. No. <laughs> well, well, it was... It, Beard uh, went and actually said, use this guy, because that's there was on tour when that happened. Oh. And, but he, he wasn't with them. Oh, okay, okay. For that for that show. So he's basically... He said, yes, you can 
Use okay. him. Let's... He bequeaths the sticks. Yep. All right. Uh, my next choice is the one and only hip-hop album on this. I'm sorry. Uh, he took my public enemy. Uh, Digital Underground just wasn't going to be it. Kid and Play. Uh, someone's going to have to explain Kid and Play to me someday how they were able to get three movies, <laughs> a cartoon, commercials off of, I think, two albums. And they had no hits. And they never charted above 150 on the Billboard charts. Who was their fucking agent who <laughs> sold them as a package? Um, but uh, my one album uh, from Hip Hop World is Tribe Called Quest. Uh, I didn't write down the whole title. People, people instinctive. Oh, people's and... instinctive travels and the paths of rhythm. Thank you, because I, I stopped after travels and I didn't write the whole thing because I'm lazy bum. Um, I love Tribe Called Quest. And else left my wallet and Elsa Gundo is just one of the best. <laughs> fun tracks um but i love the dj i love their their pairing off between the two guys it's it uh i think their next album is going to be their best and the low end theory is their best album i think most people That's, probably agree. that is the only reason why i didn't pick this album is because the next album i do think is better and what's funny about this is when i was mentioning there's an album on here that i think is the best album of the of 1990 and maybe more years than that, but uh, that's that's this album. Yeah, it's... this album is fucking perfect. It is. It, I I would spend an entire hour filleting this album. So <laughs> uh, I, I I don't want. I genuinely wrote. I don't have a lot to say because all it would be is me just sounding like a total kiss ass about yeah. how great this. Well, album is. I don't think there's anybody out there who needs us to tell a tribe called Quest is one of the greatest hip hop bands of all time. But we are now starting yeah. to enter that era of hip hop that I like. That sadly most of it's going to get ignored because what sells like fucking crazy is in two years we're going to get the Dre Snoop Dogg, you know, and that that movement. And there's good stuff in there, but I prefer hip hop. Not gangster rap. It, there's a difference, um, and 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 uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest is hip hop. They're more They're story based it's, and, it's, and different sound. It's poetry. It's jazz. It's, right. It's and, everything. And the DJ is usually not. He's not particularly using like one sample, which was a big thing I think in gangster rap. Is where it was always just a one hook from a, a sample. Where it was a mixture of sounds. You saw that with EPMD and then uh, Paul's Boutique the year before this, where it's like a carnival of sound. And a really good DJ can, it doesn't sound like chaos. And that's what happens yeah. with Tribe Called Quest, is there's a flow to it that just works. And it's not, it's not hyperkinetic. It is, it is very chill music, too. Q-Tip has a very strange voice. And some reason it works. It's so unique. And there's a lot of rappers who don't have a unique voice that they have to sound like just like everybody else. And there's a reason why he's so well known and so many people worked with him on collaborations. I, mm. Yeah, this is this is the album that I genuinely feel, well, this and Low End Theory. Yeah, both, I'm crazy but, about uh, Scenario. Scenario is maybe my favorite yeah, hip hop track of but, all time. But both both of these albums, I think, should literally be if you like music, you should own this. Yeah. All right. What is your next uh, album? Is this your last album? This is my last album. Okay. So if you want to uh, hit up things that we didn't do. Okay. Uh, well, I kind of said the hip hop stuff, but um, I had Dio on here, let out the wolves. I thought about that. Uh, Eric Bean Rakim almost made it. Delight. Uh, guess what? There's a reason why they're one hit wonder. I had that on my list. <laughs> 
Uh, Sabbath, it just didn't work for me. Um, Run DMC, this is the one that I think is their weakest album, so I didn't bother adding it. I had ZZ Top on there as well. Uh, Scorpions almost made it. Scorpions almost made it. Um, and that's it for mine. Let's see. I almost had Nitzer Ebbs, Showtime, Gwar's Scum Dogs of the Universe, Death's Spiritual Healing was on and off the list a lot. Uh, Bad Religions Against the Grain, Sister Mercy's Vision Thing, Obituary's Cause of Death, uh, Meat Beat Manifesto's Armed Audio Warfare, uh, Devo's Smooth Noodle Maps. Oh, right. And How do you fucking forget I almost, that? I almost did a live album, too. Ministries, uh, in case you didn't feel like showing up, but I was going to do the version called Live Necronomicon, which came out, uh, like, maybe 10 years ago now. Yeah. Which was the better, which wasn't overdubbed, uh, like, in case you didn't show up. So you actually had the actual sound, and it was the complete concert. You know, I thought about, like, in the 90s, comedy albums are going to have a comeback, but I don't think we should be adding them to this list. We should do our own, like, separate top ten comedy albums of all time someday down the road. Okay. Those will be – I'll have some interesting ones there. Yeah. All right. So uh, your last one is? My last one is Concrete Blonde's Bloodletting. Oh, my God. I just – I have to go clean up now. I fell in love <laughs> with this album. I've ne- I've, I knew them, and I knew the song Joey. Uh, which, by the way, has been stuck in my head ever since I listened to this on Monday. Um, my God, what an album. And I, I feel like my life would have been so much less if I had never listened to it. I almost say go back to the album we talked about free and you'll hear everything I need, everything that you need to hear about bloodletting. Uh, because as amazing as free is, and you know, I definitely spent a good amount of time you know, saying how wonderful free is and why we are cheated out of them having a better, a longer career. Bloodletting is the album that proves that rule because bloodletting is fantastic. The, the ballads are incredible. The rockers fucking tear the, the place up. That opening one, the vampire track is just yeah. awesome. I just think it's a really, I can't believe this, this band isn't more well-known or their tracks haven't made it into any movies. It, 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 like, so many of it seems like it's appropriate. It, they're so cinematic in their stories. And her like, voice Caroline, is incredible. Caroline is my favorite Susie and the Banshee yeah. song that Susie never wrote. Right, totally, yes. Like, but yeah, this is the thing is, uh, I think I said on the other show that you should have p- picked up those two albums and dropped them like what I would say, I think what free in 92 and then this at what like 90 would be like 94 or something like that. And it, this would be in a whole new ball game, like exact same albums, not, not change a thing. And, and these albums would have been like the hugest things of all time. Yeah. Just, it was before their time. Um, I, I cannot reckon this is the best album of this whole list. Maybe the best album I, I think we've ever like a new, my new discoveries of uh, the show. We've done what uh, eleven of these now. This is probably the best one. Yeah, there's yeah we've and we we've listened to some strong stuff. Yeah. All right, so my final album is Black Crow Shake Your Money Maker. I just love this like southern rock kind of boogie sound uh and his flow on some of the tracks is uh, uh, amazing i black rose i think they had this one major album but they were always kind of a consistent fan following for a very long time uh i'm gonna guess this probably isn't your kind of sound no actually uh okay 
I think I only know the Black Crows because of that album Amorica. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, because <laughs> the, <laughs> the cover. But that's the thing is, I and I don't know if I like this because it's super strong and amazing and bluesy southern rock is my jam, or one of my jams anyway. Uh, but it also could have been that fact that I did kind of follow it after listening to some stuff that wasn't as, definitely not as strong as this. Uh-huh. But no. But no, this is amazing. I genuinely feel like an idiot for not knowing Black Crows. Although, maybe, maybe I do know uh, Twice as Hard. That that sounded familiar-ish. Yeah. But well, you were you were a lot younger than me, so I was um, I was thirteen when this came out. So I was in junior high. I mean, I don't I don't think it got big till ninety one though. If I remember correctly, it was 91 because I was a freshman in high school and we were talking about how Black Crows were opening up SNL with, with Seinfeld. And uh, I just remember just, just everybody was talking about their you know two or three big hits. She talks to angels and uh, um, what's the other one? I'm getting old. I didn't write down totally things. But there, there, was a yeah. third, there was a third hit. I just know it. Um, but uh so yeah they uh they were big i think when you were you know five or six or something what year were you born again 81 so i was like nine Uh, when this hit okay yeah 10 ish when they were huge okay so i guess yeah but they were on the radio a lot and they had mtv uh hard to handle was on mtv all the time yeah Um, it it feels like i feels if i had seen them it would have been like you know at a random mtv you know video playing at some point uh, this seems like the new launch of you know how Grateful Dead were winding down and, and all those people that traveled around with them you know that kind of feeling you know they're all looking for a new band so I think it's the Black Crows were like the launch of that new kind of a hippie infused almost like 70s infused rock uh, and of course then we had Fish and uh, Blues Traveler and stuff like that where they had a very strong cult following that would just follow them around to each performance and, and Black Crows is one of those guys are one of those guys whatever it's one of, one of them bands i was born on another planet i don't know your language very well <laughs> but yeah that i that was maybe the biggest surprise only because i i wasn't sure exactly what i was going to get into and then i'm starting to hear like they get bluesy rock and i'm just like Okay, I, I'm I'm feeling this. Yeah, you know, you, you I, the get... smartest thing they did though was take that style of music and they cut out the jam part. You know how some bands they can go on and on and they wander off. Uh, from you know they they don't have the focus. This album is really tight, and I feel like I remember a couple albums later where they were kind of noodling around a lot on the tracks, and it's just not as good. Well, I would have to I would have to listen to some more and that's definitely one of those things I'm going to be doing. Yeah, I would say if it's not for Black Crows hitting so big, there's no way Spin Doctors would have got such a massive debut from an album uh, from a record label. They seem yeah. like they're the same kind yeah. of world, yeah. Um, so that is it on this album. On oh, this album, on this episode. Uh, look, I drink a lot. That's the only explanation I can give you. I'm not drunk. I'm just an idiot. Um, so where can we find you on the social media, sir? I'm on I'm on Twitter and on Twitch uh, under the name Musician M Y U Z I S H I O N. All right, and of course we are the Hit Rewind podcast. Like, share, comment. Let us know what we're doing good, what we're doing bad, and uh, that's it. Have a good night. Later, guys.